all King's kids, so just in different locations. Welcome, and we are in our journey through the Gospel of John, and we are going to be in John chapter 20, and this is a really neat pivot point here because we've spent a lot of time with Jesus, his death, um, his suffering, and now we're at that pivot point where it's the first day of the week, of that new week. Um, so we're going to go through just this one portion of the, of the resurrection. It's actually not necessarily the Lord that we're going to see in these verses, but it's a very interesting uh, launch into it and a foundation. So you can read along with me on the monitors or in your Bibles. This is John chapter 20, and we are going to read the first 10 verses. So now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they've laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following, and he entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings uh, lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered, and he saw and believed. For as of yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their homes. Repetition. We've just seen a big example of repetition. It's also referred to in the business world as the key to marketing a service or product. Repetition. Some people say repetition is the mother of learning. And it's true. The more you do something, the more you may experience it and you get better at it and you understand it. It's also a writing technique. Well, in the form of marketing, we see different types. We see brand marketing, which relies heavily on getting an image out in front of your face. It can also be something else, like a unique attribute or an identifier that the consumer will automatically see and relate to a product. Now, these could be a a tagline. I was just teasing Jerry about his Nike sneakers, how beautiful they are. But when I say just do it, you know I'm talking about Nike. Colors or even sounds or music. Aflac or Liberty, 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 that annoying commercial. (laughs) We recognize these due to repetition. So scripture uses this technique as well on two levels. So we have large-scale repetition such as the four Gospels, okay? This is the same story, but repeated in a different way and from a different angle. We also see in the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, they're repeated in Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5, and even large portions of books, such as the Kings and Chronicles. This is large-scale repetition. But what we see particularly here today is something called small-scale repetition. And these are used by the writers. To, they'll, they'll take certain phrases, certain themes, 
uh, certain ideas, maybe words, and they put them in, the, in a smaller group of pas- passage and you see them repeated. And this is also, excuse me, to emphasize an importance, uh, the importance of certain event, um, a certain idea or a person. So today we see sort of a large scale repetition of the theme of the resurrection because John's been talking about it and hinting to it throughout the whole book. And yet we now see it dovetail into this small scale repetition of a word that John is literally shoving in our faces in this passage. And I'm referring to the word tomb or the empty tomb. Matthew's gospel refers to it once. Luke and Mark, they only mention it four times each. But John mentions the empty tomb nine times in the first 11 verses, not to be mentioned again in the rest of his gospel. John's certainly trying to draw our attention to the most significant event in all of history, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of the Son of God. But the unique thing is, the resurrected Jesus doesn't even appear in these passages yet. He doesn't come in until verse 14. This leaves us no choice but to dig into this significance, this significant aspect of this passage, which is the empty tomb, before we dive deeper into the actual resurrected Jesus, which will be for uh, the rest of remainder of chapter 20. So why is John using this? What does he want us to know about it? Just that the tomb was empty? He uses this for a specific reason. Also, he wants us, I believe, to get a message. How we can cultivate and live out our faith with the risen Christ. So John shows us three things in these first ten verses. He shows us the timing of the empty tomb. He shows us the witnesses at the empty tomb. And he also shows us the view inside the empty tomb. So we have the timing the witnesses and the view, not the view that you watch on the view. Just kidding. So let's take a look. The timing of this whole entire thing is very unique. Every gospel writer, when they talk about the empty tomb, they talk about the resurrection of Jesus. They all speak of it as being the first day of the week. And that, as we know, is Sunday. That's why we worship on Sunday. The original Sabbath is Saturday. That's when the Jewish people celebrate the Sabbath. But the reason we start, the reason the Christians started worshiping on Sunday was because it was the first day of the new week. Now, without getting into uh, backtracking theologically too far, as you remember, we've talked about this several times over the past couple of years, when a writer refers to the word week, it could mean the word week, or it could mean a period of time, or it could mean, um, like in Daniel, when he said it's, it's going to be 70 weeks, the angel said it's going to be 70 weeks of years, which is 490. So we have, a, we have different play on the word, but here, the, the large-scale repetition here of the first day of the week, this empty tomb, John and the other gospel writers are telling us that something new has happened. This is a new creation, a new period of time. 
<clears throat> seven is the number of completion. Seven notes on the scale, seven days in a week. Significantly, eight is the number of Jesus. Every name for Jesus in the Greek is divisible by eight, for instance. Eight is the symbol of new creation. And here we have Jesus defeating death and defeating sin and defeating evil at the cross. And now he is that first fruits of the new creation. But first, what we see here is an empty tomb in the garden. So we remember the garden where it all happened in the beginning. And now we're seeing that garden be renewed and refreshed as it relates to man's responsibility and vocation. And we must keep in that picture that empty tomb because the empty tomb is the beginning of the new beginning. Jesus has now came out of that tomb and he has defeated death. Jesus now brings to man not only a new creation where, where love is going to defeat evil and sin, the blood of Christ, but Jesus also brings man into a new beginning of a relationship with him because of this empty tomb. He gives him an opportunity to have fellowship with Jesus Christ himself through Jesus Christ to the living God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He brings to each of us, this empty tomb shows us the beginning for our new life in Christ, for those that believe in Jesus Christ. But again, you have to look at that tomb and believe. So we see the timing. It's obviously the first day of the week. It's still dark. They saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. And again, tomb is used all throughout this, almost in every single verse. So now we have the witnesses. Who were they? And why are they significant? Well, we see Mary. We see Peter. We see John. And each of them see the empty tomb. But John is showing us something really unique. He uses three different words on three different occasions for the word see. Now, Mary in verse one saw very simply. The word is blepeo, meaning to clearly see a material object. There's nothing mystical about it. I see this pulpit. I see Joshua. I see John. I see everybody, right? We see it. That's the word that they're using. That's what John does in verse 5. When he comes in verse 5, he stoops in, he looks in, he saw the linen wrapping. So he looked in the tomb. He didn't go in, but he saw the linen wrappings there. Now, John, I believe, makes mention as a side note of Mary because she's the one that ran to his house. Because we see other gospel um, uh, uh, variations in, in the synoptic gospels which have other people at the grave as well. She brought Peter to him with the news. She uses the word we when she comes, and that's inferring indeed that the other ladies were in fact with her as the other gospels relate. They came to the tomb and they found the stone rolled away. And so this account, as a side note, is not contradictory to the other gospels as some people would suppose. They all fit together. 
And I don't want to veer off and go through all that here because I want to stick to what John is trying to tell us in his specific test, uh, text. <clears throat> but then we have two other versions of C. We have Peter in verse 6. So Simon Peter also came following him and sent, entered the tomb and he saw the linen wrappings. Now, he, John uses the word thorio, meaning to scrutinize, to see to look and, and contemplate and observe. Like, is this really true? Is this right? Like, what am I looking at here? And so he wants us to understand how Peter was feeling at this point. Of course, Peter walks right into the grave. He's personality. We know Peter is a very, you know, uh, he's sort of, he, he's, it's, instead of ready, aim, fire, it's ready, fire, aim with Peter. You know, so he just goes right in. But here we have another very unique word of see, where John comes in and sees. And see, I, I find it interesting that Matthew, when he mentions the word tomb, he doesn't mention it, he only mentions it once, and he doesn't even use the word tomb. He, used the, he uses the word grave or sepulcher, which is meaning like any sort of monument. That's the same word that could be used as well. But John uses it in a very different way. He uses the word tomb, which means a visible object for preserving or recalling the memory of a person or thing. Again, John wants us to know and, and remember this empty tomb. And then him referring to himself as the one who Jesus loved in verse 8. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered. So now John goes in and he saw, different word there, and believed. The word that John uses to describe what he saw is to understand and perceive with significance. He perceived it, the significance of what he saw. And then it says he believed. And so what John is trying to show us and what the Lord is trying to show us here is that there is a way to see an empty tomb. Yeah, it's an empty tomb. Right now I could see that empty tomb. Jesus was, yeah, he's not there. That doesn't mean anything. Somebody could have came and took him. He could have maybe didn't really die. He got up, walked out. Who knows? Somebody stole the body. It's an intellectual belief. It's an intellectual consent. You see, that does not save us. Many of us, or many people, may believe in the true historical Jesus. I mean, it's, it's written in uh, secular books that he existed. But what do you see? <clears throat> do you see a material object when you look in the tomb? Do you see and perceive? Or do you believe because of what you're seeing? That's what John is telling us to do. Believe in the risen Christ. What does that mean? Well, I think it's pretty significant here that Mary Magdalene is the first one to announce, not only announce the resurrection, but she was the first one to actually see the empty tomb. <clears throat> Jesus had cast seven demons out of her, Luke 8 and Mark 16. We see that. But a woman who ate of the fruit 
in the original garden that destroyed the world. But I'm not blaming women that for that. Not directly anyway. It was man and women. They were both the image of God. They both sinned against God. But I find it very unique that a woman who ate of the fruit that destroyed the world is now the first one to discover this new tomb in the new garden in this new world that Jesus is launching. So Jesus can use people despite their troubled past Despite the mess they've made of their life before, the empty tomb is that of renewal. Nothing disqualifies you from coming to Christ. Only your belief. What do you see? Nothing. Your sins of your past, as Kevin prayed, they're nailed to the cross. The sins of your present, forgiven, nailed to the cross. The sins of your future, Forgiven already. God knows everything you've ever thought and will think and what, everything you've ever done and will do. And he loves us despite that. But you have to look and believe. You have to believe in the resurrected Christ. Now, the third thing we're going to look at here is the actual view inside the tomb. Why it's mentioned the way that it is. See, it's a very unique mention of the burial wrappings in verses 5 to 7. It's not as you look and you're stupid and he looked stupid and he saw the linen wrapping, they were lying there and he didn't go in. You see, what ends up happening to a body, especially one where they used so many spices and aloe and they wrap, like we've seen pictures of mummies, they become mummified, that's how tight they wrap. And they start to get, it starts to become like a cocoon, even after a a day or two, it starts to harden up. And the only way these, these wrappings can typically be removed is if they're cut and they would have to be torn apart. It would require cutting and tearing. But with the way that John is saying Peter saw is that he saw it was not a normal removal of the burial wrappings. The whole point of the description that he uses here is that the grave clothes did not look as if they had been put off or even taken off. They were just lying there in regular folds as if the body of Jesus had simply evaporated out of them. Now, I'm not saying Jesus evaporated. That's a Gnostic view. You know, Jesus was just a spirit body, you know, and he could walk through walls and all that stuff. Jesus is the firstborn of the new creation. He is with, right now, his physicality is what we will have in the resurrection. It's flesh and bone. It's not flying around with the angels playing a harp and disembodied from our physical. It's not that. Jesus affirmed creation is good by coming as a man and being risen from the dead as a man. So he is alive. He is present with us here and everywhere through the Holy Spirit, but physically Jesus is in one location and he's seated at the right hand of God. But it is what we will be. That grave, those grave clothes will not move. Those grave clothes will look as if a body evaporated. Now remember Lazarus when he came out. Lazarus, come forth, right? And what did he do? He walked out like 
He was barely able to move, probably, because Jesus said, take those wrappings off of him. Jesus didn't say, Lazarus, unwrap yourself, because he would never be able to do that. See, Jesus took off in a different way those wrappings. He came out of it. We don't know exactly how, but he did. <clears throat> the linen cloths were orderly. If somebody robbed the body, they would have never taken off the grave clothes and took the body out. They would have taken the whole body with the grave clothes with them. <clears throat> now, John describes two aspects of the grave wrappings, the linen cloth and the handkerchief that had been around the head. In the Jewish burial custom, they would wrap the body uh, in, in, in the linen wrappings and they would put the spices in that thing. And then they would take a separate cloth and wrap the head. And as we see here, the linen wrappings were there and the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up and placed uh, in, in, rolled up in a place by itself. <clears throat> this is, to me, I think, a very good, um, I would say, apologetic against the Shroud of Turin. I don't know if you've heard of that, where they found the shroud that looked like it was a crucified man. They thought it was Jesus, but it covered the head. And that's not what John is telling us here. These are two separate wrappings. His head was wrapped individually from the body. The other unique thing is that they had a lack of knowledge of Scripture. You see, verse 9 says that uh, the other disciple who had first come to the tomb, they entered, they saw, they believed, they knew something had happened. They knew Jesus rose. They believed that. But yet they didn't understand the Scripture of really what that meant. It says it right here, for as yet they didn't understand the Scripture that he must rise from the dead. He had to absolutely rise from the dead. Now, I could spend days talking about this if we just took our time and went through all the scripture of the Old Testament. We could see how the resurrection is, is there. It's waiting. It's obviously on the big scale. It had to happen. This new, this age, the current age of sin is going down, heading down. But Christ and the renewal of those people, you and I, and the people that believe in him are being renewed, going up. And our ultimate destinations will meet. They will. Every knee will bow before Christ. Every single knee. Those that believe, those, those that didn't believe. But those that, are, that rise that don't believe are going that opposite direction. See, Paul tells us and shows us this, um, that Israel, he says, was baptized in the Red Sea. The coming up out of the water, he says, of baptism is a symbol of the resurrection of the dead. For those of you who remember, the Israel came up out of the water of the Red Sea three days, what? After slaying the Passover lamb. We have the deliverance of Isaac from the altar after he had been dead in the mind of his father Abraham for three days. Go sacrifice your son. Three days later is when he was rescued. And obviously the Psalms, my heart is glad and my, and my glory rejoice. My flesh shall also rest in hope for you will not leave my soul in hell. Neither will you allow your Holy One to see decay. And of course, the new heavens and the new earth throughout Isaiah. <clears throat> so what is the conclusion of all this? What do we get from this? So what? Now what do we do? We look in the empty tomb. What does it mean for you right now? What is the purpose of the empty tomb? Well, number one, we said the empty tomb shows us the grave has been defeated. 
Now, this should give you great hope, not only for yourself, because you will be, if you're a Christian, you will rise from the dead. But for those of us that have lost people, lost loved ones, great hope. Because one day they too, that when those that die in Christ, they will also rise. The grave will have and has no ultimate power over them. As we read this morning, Kevin read, I shall ransom them from the power of the grave. Oh, death, where is your sting? Paul says. Death is swallowed up in victory. Death has no power over you. It's defeated. Now, I'm, I'm not trying to say, well, let's just be happy now. No, listen, this body of flesh is going to die. In 100 years from now, None of us will be here probably unless there's some crazy advancement in technology and then maybe you'll live an extra 10 years. But there's going to come a time when every one of us, after we're in that tomb, that that tomb will become empty because of the defeat of the grave. Now, the empty tomb also tells us the fear of death should be no more. You see, the Bible says right here, in Hebrews 2.14, that therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, also partook of the same. He became flesh and blood, that through death he might render powerless him who has the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. The fear of death enslaves us. The fear of death, we, we, that we're, we're programmed, right? But when you notice when you become a, a Christian, you become alive in Christ, death just is another chapter. There's a continuity from this life into the new world that we're going to enter into when we raise. There's not the fear of death where Jesus says that I am the resurrection and the life. Though you were dead, yet you shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me, what? will never die. He's not talking about we'll never die because we believe in Jesus. He's saying that that penalty of death, that sting, that permanent, that finality of it is no longer there for you. You should be free from that. Live your life free in the Lord, abiding in Christ. Let his will be done because you will be present with him when you pass immediately into that other world, whether you live another day or another 20 or 30 years or another 50 years, that day will come, but you'll pass right into his arms. Right there. And that gives me great hope. It should give you great hope as well. It's also renewal and the new life now. See, that the life that I'm talking about, that resurrected life, that resurrected body that you were going to share in as Jesus' body, as, as his body is, You see, that starts when you become saved. When you believe in Jesus Christ, you are now becoming renewed day in and day out. As your flesh becomes weak and your spirit is getting renewed, you're made more into the image of Christ. And then when death happens, that process, there's a continuity to the end. Yes, you'll be in the grave, but then that grave, that tomb will be empty. And you will see everything you've done in this life will have counted for where you're going. Like bricks on a building. You're going to see all the work that you did. You're going to see everything you've done for Christ. It did not, did not happen in vain. 
because all things came into being through him, all of those who believe are now being renewed through him as well. So important to get that, to see the purpose that you, because a lot of times we try to divide God up, right? Well, this is church is, is this, and this is, um, you know, holy stuff I do over here. And then I go over here to work and then I go over here to relax and then I go to the gym and then I do this. But God says, no, everything you're doing is moving forward, is building for and towards that kingdom. You don't realize it now, but you've been made very uniquely for that specific purpose and put in this time in history, this little bleep on the screen, very significant to the kingdom. So now the big question is, well, how does this really work, this whole resurrection thing? You see, the, uh, the empty tomb is the prototype of every believer's experience. This is what we look forward to, that empty tomb. But how? You see, resurrection was really not discussed a lot in Jewish eschatology or in Jewish theology. They believed in the resurrection, but they believed that they would all be raised at the end of time. Not would resurrection ever happen in the middle of time, in the middle of history. It's expected at the end. But in the end, on the last day, we are told, I tell you a mystery, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. The trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. See, there's, you're still a person. You're still physical. It's just different. And this corresponds with 1 Thessalonians 4, when the Bible says that Jesus is going to descend from heaven, and with a shout, with a trumpet, the dead in Christ will arise first, and we will meet the Lord in the air. This doesn't mean we're all going to be flying up to, in the air. If you look at that word meet in the Greek, there's eight different words for meet in the Greek, M-E-E-T. Though that very specific word is only used twice in the, in the New Testament. And it talks about meeting, going out and meeting royalty to escort them back. So it's not about us going and getting taken away. At the last day, we are going to meet and when Christ comes and returns, we are going to meet him. Okay, this is apocalyptic language. This isn't literal language. This isn't wings that we're flying. We're going to meet him and he is going to come to the kingdom that he is building here. And the dead will rise. But how does this happen? I find it very interesting that the law of conservation of mass says that matter never goes away. Matter never dies. It can never be destroyed. It can change forms through physical and chemical changes, but it's always conserved. <clears throat> DNA doesn't die. Your DNA, that what makes you unique as a person, which has intelligent design, which can only be done by somebody as God, creates this, this piece of DNA that's inside of us that is more advanced than anything we've ever seen in the world. According to NBC Online, they had an article that says, how long can DNA last? A million years, maybe more. 
The oldest DNA samples ever recovered are from insects and plants in Greenland. They're up to 800,000 years old, according to the scientists. Temperatures, uh, oxygen uh, availability, and other environmental factors, they all play in. But, the, but according to this researcher, his name is Mike Bunce from Murdoch University's Ancient DNA Lab in Perth, he and his team put DNA's half-life at 521 years, meaning half of the DNA bonds would be broken down uh, at 520 years later, the other half would break down. But he also says this, in his experiments, this rate is 400 times slower than the simulation experiments that he predicted. He says and believes that DNA bonds would be completely destroyed in bone after about 6.8 million years. Now, why am I showing you all this? You see, you being rose from the dead is like you and I putting a puzzle, a piece of a puzzle on the floor, a little piece of, let's say it's a map of the United States. I don't know, it's got 15 pieces or whatever. How hard would it be? It'd be so simple, right? We did it with our kids, you know, we put the piece together, you learn the map. That's all it is going to be for God. You're going to be in that grave, but your DNA exists. He is going to call forth. He's going to come back with a trumpet and you are going to be remade. It's, it's actually one of the most incredible miracles ever. But you know what? Your heart can never be remade without Christ. Your heart. That's the only thing that we can't remake. We can't go in and take out this heart of stone that we're born with and, get, and, and only God can, can exchange it for the heart of flesh. He is the master builder. He says the word and you will be put back together. That's very encouraging. John 5, 28 to 29. Do not marvel at this for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did good to a resurrection of life, those who committed evil to a resurrection of judgment. How many of you have ever committed evil? I think it's just about every single human being that's ever lived. There's no good deeds that can pull you out of that. You can't, you can't outwork evil. Can't do it. You can try to shape yourself up, come to church, give money, be a good person. Every one of you here probably sit down next to you. Great person. I know most of you here. But compared to God's holiness, he makes the, 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 the best person in the world. Who's, just pick somebody that you think, this greatest person that ever lived. He makes that person look, as the Bible says, like a filthy rag. Nothing against that. Nothing against people or that person but language that must be used to understand who we're dealing with here. A holy, righteous God who's not arbitrarily going, oh, I'm just going to be holy and righteous and send some people to hell and save some other people. No, he is love. Everything out of this book is an expression of God's character. It's his nature to save and to love, but it's our nature to rebel. And we can only change with belief in Christ. That's what the empty tomb is telling us. 
You have to follow the one who left that empty tomb. And you need to give him your heart. You need to tell him, Lord, I'm yours. I don't have the answers. I don't know if I know everything, but I'm not going to let what I don't know ruin what I do know. And that is that Jesus Christ is the only way. He is the truth and he is the life. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your holy word. And thank you, Lord, for this great hope of life, of life when there'll be no sin, there'll be no struggle, there'll be no trial and tribulation. There'll only be your glory, Lord. And who knows what you have in store for us? We, We can't even comprehend it. But Lord, we see the image of Christ. We see what you've done. We see this empty tomb. And, and Lord, allow us, show us, Lord, how to follow him. So that day when we do hear that trumpet, when we do hear your voice, we could come and fall at your feet and give you all the glory for your salvation that you've given us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, stand, let's stand together and we'll worship this last song, which is Great is Thy Faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness.